from Romans. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit are children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And from Galatians. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. Let us pray. Send your Holy Spirit, Lord, calm our anxious hearts. The dolphin way may hear God's will, that Davinway may follow God's will when we hear it, that everyone may show openness, humility, and mutual respect towards others, that Davinway may feel at peace with both the process and the results of our discernment, set us apart from worldly decision-making by how we love one another. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. 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 You know, I want to jump ahead just a bit in the story of the Bible, if you don't mind. Please forgive me if it feels like I might be ruining the end of Lent. But there is a great story from Jesus that happens after the resurrection. There is a story where he appears to the disciples, and I think it is a perfect conversation at this point in our Lenten series. The story goes like this. One morning, the disciples were hanging out around the Sea of Galilee. So far in John's gospel, Jesus has appeared to the disciples twice. And we know from Matthew's gospel that Jesus told the disciples, go ahead to Galilee and wait for me there. So that's what they're doing. The disciples are hanging out by the Sea of Galilee, sitting around and waiting. And eventually, Peter was like, I need something to do. I'm going fishing which is what I often say whenever I need something to do. I just thought, I'm going to go fishing as long as there's nothing to do around the house. Well, so the other disciples that were there with him said, that's a great idea. We'll go too. Sounds good. The disciples get in the boat and they fish all night long and they don't catch a thing, which also sounds like what I do when I got something that I want to go fishing. They fish all night. They don't catch any fish. And and then all of a sudden, as the, the day is breaking, A man walks by on the seashore and yells out to them, hey, y'all caught any fish? Which is like 
the most disheartening thing ever, right? You've been fishing all day. Somebody pulls up next to you in their boat or walks up. Hey, you had any luck? No, been out here for hours. And then to top it off, they, they offer you some advice. Don't you love it when somebody just comes up and tells you what you need to be doing instead of what you've actually been doing? And the, he, the man hollers at them from the seashore and he says to them, why don't you just try and cast on the other side of the boat? Have you ever thought of that? Just, just cast on the other side, throw your net on the other side of the boat, which makes no sense, right? This boat has no relation to the fish. It's just some arbitrary shape on top of the water. It doesn't make a difference what side of the boat you're on or not, but the disciples do it. I don't know if they do it begrudgingly. They're like, fine, we'll just entertain this guy. Or they're just so desperate, right? Like, fine, nothing else has worked. So they throw the net onto the right side of the boat and all of a sudden their nets are overwhelmed with the number of large fish. So many so that it almost sinks the boat. The boat almost goes over because of how many fish are in their net. And the Bible makes sure to point out that the nets don't break. They realize all of a sudden that wasn't just any man. John says, it is the Lord. And Peter was so excited about it that he jumped out of the boat and swam to shore to get to Jesus. When the rest of the disciples made it there, they hauled in their nets with 153 large fish. They get there and Jesus has already prepared breakfast for them. He sits there by the fire and invites them to come and eat. He has prepared some fish and some loaves. You've heard that before, maybe. They all sit there in silence. None of them dare asking, is this Jesus? Because they all knew that this was their Lord. I love that story. I love it for a lot of reasons. It's a story that's unique to John's gospel. And it's a story where the appearance of Jesus is very different from the other two times Jesus appears to the disciples after the resurrection. In both of the other two accounts, Jesus shows up in a room where the doors are locked. He just appears out of nowhere. In one of the accounts, he has holes in his hand and a wound in his side that Thomas can touch. But on this occasion, the guys are just doing what they know how to do. They're just fishing. They're waiting around and they go about their ordinary business of life. They're waiting for Jesus and then Jesus shows up in the middle of their ordinary day. You know, we're continuing our Lenten series called God Still Speaks, where we are revisiting the ways in which we understand that God is still speaking into our lives. We believe that God didn't just used to speak or used to act. God's activity is not confined to the Bible. God is still speaking today to each and every one of us. We as Methodists use the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which is a terrible name. We know, we've said that, but it is the name by which we understand how we discern God's will. These four avenues, scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. We talked about how God is speaking to us through the Bible still today and how we use our reasoning abilities and we ask questions. We don't check our brain at the door. We come in and try to understand more and more. Our tradition passes down to us the words of others who came before us and how they help us understand the Bible. And today, we're going to wrap up 
our Wesleyan quadrilateral, but not our series. We have one more week where next week we will consider how the church's role, what the church's role is in this discernment. But for this morning, I would like for us to talk about experiences. Experiences with God. And there are two types of ways we can talk about experiences with the divine. The first type of experiences are unexplainable experiences. And the second are ordinary experiences. What do I mean by unexplainable and ordinary? Well, let's talk about unexplainable first. When I say unexplainable experiences, think of the way that Jesus shows up to the disciples the first two times. He shows up in a room like David Blaine, right? All of a sudden, it's just like magic. He's there. The doors are locked, and they're just all hanging out talking. And then Jesus is there in the middle, showing the wounds. These are things that cannot be explained, and the Bible is full of unexplainable experiences with God. Moses saw God in a bush that was burning but did not burn up. Peter, James, and John saw Jesus dazzling white on top of a mountain. Paul had scales cover his eyes because of the blinding light of Christ. I think most of the time when we talk about experiences with God, when we say we encounter the divine, we are imagining these unexplainable experiences. We are imagining the clouds opening up and God is speaking from on high. We're thinking about how the waters can part or how tongues of fire will come down on people's heads and not consume them. Maybe you think about how God will stop a television program that you're watching and talk directly through that TV right to you. I'm going to be honest. I have never had a full-blown, unexplainable experience with God. I'm not denying they happen. I never would. There are testaments about these in the Bible and plenty of people have had these encounters. But I've never been driving down the road and had some experience of clairvoyance where all of a sudden I had direct access to the mind of God. Moses had those experiences. The apostles at Pentecost had those experiences and plenty of people who I know and love had their lives changed by unexplainable experiences with God. It's just never happened to me personally. But that doesn't mean that I've never experienced the presence of Christ in my life. Even though I've never had one of those time standstill moments, I have still had my experiences with God. They often happen, though, in what I call the ordinary ways. You know, we go to worship every week. This is an ordinary thing we do, but we are planning that we come here for a miracle to happen. In the ordinary happenstances of coming to worship, we expect, we believe that we can have an encounter with God. And every time that happens, it's miraculous. I have conversations with friends and family every day. It's really ordinary. But I believe that God often uses the people in my life to offer me the words I need. Maybe it's words of encouragement, words of conviction. I believe that God uses those closest to us to share the the word of the Holy Spirit that is specifically for us. I read my Bible. I listen to music. I go on walks. I do ordinary things all the time. And for me, when I experience God, it most often happens in those ordinary moments. Sometimes these experiences are, our momentary encouragement. Maybe 
you are struggling and just in need of some sort of welcome word of hope. Other times, they're, they're words of conviction, right? There are sometimes we're doing things we know we ought not to do. And when the Lord speaks into our lives to help us realize that, it is a convicting moment. It is a moment where we recognize that God might be calling us to turn from such things. We call that repentance. Sometimes these moments that cause you to stop in your tracks and maybe change something significant about your life. An encounter with, the God, with God can be transformational. I, the best example in my own life of that happening, and it's only happened once, was whenever I was in the 10th grade and I was at a worship service and I had an encounter with God that made me believe and come to know that God was calling me, leading me to change schools. I'd been in a small private school my whole life and my mom used to teach there. My sister graduated from there, but I, I never felt comfortable there. I never really liked it very much. And I felt and I believed that God was calling me to change. When I told my parents that, they said, are you sure it wasn't just like indigestion? You sure you weren't feeling something different than the Holy Spirit? And being good Methodists, they had me go talk to my pastor because when we have experiences, it's good to have them affirmed by somebody else and have them in conversation. And Lawson Bryan, who was my preacher in Dothan, he used to be the pastor at Ashland Place before he came over to us in the Wiregrass. He helped me understand why this was a good thing I was experiencing. And it ended up being one of the best decisions I ever made in my entire life. And it was the only time I ever had one of those big overwhelming encounters that stopped me dead in my tracks and made me change a significant direction of my life. But I've had plenty of other experiences of God. Not every experience with God is some life-altering change. Some are gentle winds that remind us that God is with us. But there is no limit to what God can and might be saying to you today. There's no way to, to confine the work that God wants to do in your life. And we should say, though, that the, the elevation to include experience in the discerning of God's will is somewhat unique to Wesleyans in comparison to many of our other mainline Protestant and some of our Catholic sisters and brothers. Richard Hooker was an Anglican priest in the 16th century, and he wrote a book of the laws of ecclesiastical polity, which is about as exciting as it sounds. So along with our book of discipline, if you're looking for some like fall asleep reading material in nighttime, of the law of ecclesiastical polity would be a recommendation I would give you. But he says this, scripture, reason, and tradition were accepted as the three-legged stool of Anglican authority. Meaning that they believe these three things that we also affirm, but they left out experience. Many well-meaning traditions regard the use of experience and discernment with great suspicion. And it's not like there isn't some merit to their suspicions. How many times have we heard about Christians doing something problematic or even horrible, all because they claim God told them to do so? How many times have we heard about tragedies because somebody said they had an encounter with God that led them to do this thing? or it was an experience that compelled them to act in a certain way. There are some traditions that rely primarily on experiences without the gifts of reason and tradition to hold them up against one another. And those interpretations of scripture can lead to all sorts of unusual ways of reading. 
John Wesley, our founder himself, though he was our impetus for including experience in our discernment, he recognized that this suspicion of unfounded experiences is worth noting. He said in a sermon one time called The Witness of the Spirit, how many have mistaken the voice of their own imagination for the witness of the Spirit of God and thence idly presume they were children of God while they were doing the works of the devil. However, even though he and we know that not all these experiences we hear about are legitimate, was he still believed, and we still affirm today, that experiences can and should be considered when we're trying to discern God's will in our lives. Wesley said himself that he was trying to steer a middle course, a via media, between those who only affirm reason, scripture, and tradition, and those who rely solely on their feelings. Which is why today we can celebrate the experiences that people have with God. We can celebrate the experiences of our community that we share and we experience together while we are also within our rights to ask questions. When somebody comes and says, I, God has told, has told me to do something. Next week, we'll talk more about how it's the church's role to ask those questions, not to be interrogating or presume guilty without some sort of better conversation, but for us as a community to ask questions to understand how God is still speaking. But this morning, though, it is enough for us to say that genuine experiences with God are things for which we can all give thanks. We can all search for. These experiences give us the assurance of our salvation and of God's presence in our lives. If you've been around a Methodist church for about a minute, you'll know that assurance is one of those buzzwords we really like around here. It's up there with grace and sanctification. We talk about assurance a lot. Wesley insisted that any true faith would not only produce obedience, but also assurance. And it was this promise of assurance that so electrified his listeners and so fueled the early part of the Methodist movement. He, like us, believed that when you are living out a faithful Christian life, there will be moments when you experience God And in that experience, you will feel the assurance of your faith. Assurance is the product of experience. Assurance is what we all get whenever we we, we get all excited to talk about when we say how Wesley had his heart strangely warmed there on that Aldersgate Street experience when he was listening to the preface of Romans being read. Assurance is what you feel when we all have the the, the organ playing and we're singing our favorite hymn and the voices are just so loud that it makes you well up with tears and you feel the presence of God. Assurance is the gift that you receive when you're driving down the road and all the woes and the worries of life are just weighing on you. And then this perfect song comes on with the, with the words of encouragement for that particular moment you need. And you just feel this sense of peace that passes all understanding. That's assurance. That is the assurance that God wants to give you through an experience with Jesus Christ. You know, there's a difference between knowing the stories of the Bible and experiencing the good news. In the former, it's just fascinating tales of things God used to say. But in the latter, 
It is God still speaking to offer us transformational experiences where your life is changed forever. And at this point, you might be wondering, well, how do I know? How do I know what I or anyone else is experiencing is a a real good news moment and not just my own imagination? Well, Paul's letter to the church in Galatia made it pretty clear. In our epistle lesson, he gives us the best standards by which we can judge these things. It's really easy to know whether yours or somebody else's experience with the Holy Spirit is true and right and good. If it is, it will bear fruit. And not just any fruit. Nope, the fruit of the Spirit's not a watermelon. Y'all remember that song, Vacation Bible School? Fruit of the Spirit's not a watermelon. If you want to be a watermelon, might as well do it. You can't be a fruit of the Spirit. Fruits are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You remember that? I figured y'all started singing along with me. (laughs) Our text had forbearance, but we all know patience. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you experience God, you will be led to those things. If somebody tells you they had an experience with the divine, they should produce one of those fruits. True experiences with God bear fruit. If somebody tells you that God is telling them to do something that leads to hate and violence and unkindness, things that are not of the fruit of the Spirit, then that was the indigestion speaking. That was not the divine. That was not the Holy Spirit. When you encounter Christ, you can't help but bear the fruits of love and joy and peace and all these others that we know to be good. As we wrap up this morning, as we conclude this conversation about experiences with God, I, I want to go back to that first story about the fish and the fishermen. And uh, I'm, I'm, I love that story for a lot of reasons. One, because I like to think of myself as a fisherman and I can relate, you know. And, but I also think that there is a, a moment of assurance in that story that often goes unnoticed. These men were not rich. They were not the ones who had the nicest, newest fishing gear. And in fact, they were probably out of practice because they'd been walking around following Jesus for three years. And so who knows if their nets were even mended or taken care of. Yet even still, when Jesus appeared to them and provided a miracle in the midst of their ordinary lives, they filled their nets to overflowing with 153 large fish. And the Bible makes sure to point out that the nets never broke. They should have. They should have not been able to hold them. The net should have ripped apart. But when Jesus shows up, even if it is in the most ordinary part of your life, even if it's not some burning bush fashion, when you experience God in a real way, you too will know the assurance of nets that never break, that God will show up in miraculous ways in your life, and provide you with an assurance that is so strong, that is so good, that nothing can break it. That's my prayer for us today as a church, 
for you as individuals, for our denomination, is that we will see God in our midst and we will know that when God shows up, miracles are happening. When God appears in our midst, we are given assurance. And that when we are given these gifts, these experiences, sometimes they will seem so great. Maybe sometimes the calling will seem so large. But we can know that when God shows up, he offers us nets that never break. That is my prayer for each of us this morning, that you will know that kind of assurance. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit,